Well, I'd like to begin this morning by putting a picture on the screen. It's a painting, it's a, it's a piece of art, and it's my guess that most of us will recognise it. It's my guess that almost every single one of us would have seen this before. It's one of the most famous paintings in the world. Here it is. Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper. Now, da Vinci painted this in 1495, and it depicts Jesus' final meal with his disciples. Now, paintings of The Last Supper were not exactly uncommon in that day, but what makes da Vinci's unique is that he chose to depict the moment when Jesus told his disciples that one of them would betray him. This is why you see all these kind of shocked, expressive reactions in the painting. You can see there, James next to Jesus has his arms thrown out in disbelief. You can see John there looks serene or or possibly sad. And then you have Peter's head kind of in between there and he's looking very, very angry. I wonder if you can see what Peter has in his hand there. Might be a little bit far away, but it's a knife. Peter, of course, will cut off the guard's ear later that evening. And then, of course, you have Judas. And he looks deathly afraid. You can see maybe what he has in his hand. A bag of coins. The coins that he agreed to betray Jesus. And so if you slow down, if you take a closer look at this painting, there's all kinds of things that are going on at the Last Supper. And this is what we're going to do today. We are in week three of a sermon series that we've called The Final Days of Jesus, the week that changed the world. We're going on a journey with Jesus through the final week of his life. And today we come to the Last Supper. Jesus' final meal with his disciples, the meal that you and I know today as Lord's Supper or communion. Now, it's amazing to me that when Jesus wanted his followers to understand the significance of what was about to happen to him, his death and his resurrection, he didn't choose to give a a theory or a manual. He gave us a meal. He took the very simple elements of bread and wine and he applied them to himself and to his death. He broke the bread, he poured the wine, he gave it to the disciples and he said, do this in remembrance of me. This is why even to this day, you and I continue to participate in the Lord's Supper. It's one of two acts or or rituals which Jesus specifically commanded us to do. The first, of course, is baptism, which we celebrated just a moment ago, and the other is Lord's Supper, which we'll be looking at today. Now, to help us get our bearings of where we're up to in the story, this is the summary of Jesus' final week, which we've been using so far. And the events at which we're looking at today, they take place mostly on the Thursday. Now, what we've seen so far is that Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey to great fanfare on the Sunday. On the Monday, he went to visit the temple and he threw some people out. He started to act a bit like the bouncer of the temple. Then on the Tuesday, he went back to the temple. He was questioned by the religious leaders. He did some teaching, which we looked at last week. 
Then the Wednesday was actually relatively quiet compared to the other days. There were no recorded controversies or confrontations. It was, I guess, hump day, so Jesus wanted to maybe take it a little bit easier. But the day did end on a slightly ominous note. It's what we read at the end of Wednesday, at the beginning of chapter 22. Now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. The religious leaders want Jesus gone. He's a threat to their position, he's a threat to their authority, but they have a problem. They're afraid of the people. Jesus was incredibly popular with the crowds. And the crowds that were in Jerusalem at this point, they would have been far bigger than usual. Because as we read there, it was approaching the time of the Passover. Now the Passover was the pinnacle of the Jewish religious calendar. It was a festival celebrating the Exodus, when God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. And to celebrate the Passover, people would flock to Jerusalem. I mean, Jerusalem would have been filled with hundreds of thousands of people. The city would have been heaving. And so the religious leaders need to find a way to arrest Jesus away from the crowds without people knowing. And this brings us to the events of our passage today. Now, I know it's a big passage, but it really just unfolds in three main scenes. What we see in verses 1 to 6 is the betrayal. In verses 7 to 23, the supper. And then in verses 24 to 38, we see the debate. And so we're just going to work through these three scenes, the betrayal, the supper, the debate, and we'll pull out some important lessons as we go along. So let's begin with the betrayal. Now, the name Judas has really become synonymous with betrayal, hasn't it? You might think about some other noteworthy betrayals like Scar and Mufasa, Brutus and Caesar or or whatever it might be, but Judas is really the name that is synonymous with betrayal and for good reason. Judas was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, part of his closest band of friends and followers. And yet it's Judas who gives the religious leaders the opportunity they need to arrest Jesus. Now we're not told exactly why Judas does this, why he approaches the religious leaders to hand Jesus over. But it's pretty clear from verse 5 that Judas was driven by greed. We're told that the religious leaders agreed to give him money. Judas went to these religious leaders because he was looking to get paid. Now this actually lines up with what we know about Judas from elsewhere in the Bible. We read in John chapter 12 that Judas actually was the treasurer. He was the one who looked after the money bag for Jesus and the disciples. We're also told in that passage that he would help himself to its contents, that he was a thief and he used this position to line his own pockets. And and so Judas is driven by greed to hand Jesus over. And I think Judas is a warning for us in a couple of ways. See, Judas is a warning to us about the danger of empty religion. As I've already said, Judas was part of Jesus' disciples, his closest band of followers. He lived with Jesus. He he learned from Jesus for three years. He heard Jesus teach. He witnessed Jesus' miracles. He observed Jesus' character. 
He even served in ministry alongside Jesus, teaching in Jesus' name. And yet, this turn of events reveals that Judas didn't really know or love Jesus. And I think this reveals to us the possibility that you can be busy doing things for Jesus, but not really love Jesus. You can come to church to worship Jesus, but, but not really know Jesus. You can say you believe in Jesus, but then live the rest of your life as if he doesn't exist. Jesus once said about these kinds of people in Matthew 15, he said, they draw near to me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Now it's sobering, isn't it? But, but I think it's important. I mean, what about you? What about me? Where is your heart? Have you drifted from Jesus? If that might be you, then today God is very kindly, very graciously inviting you to come back, to draw near to him, to confess, to repent, and to come back with all of your heart. And Jesus promises at multiple places in the Bible that he will never turn you away. Judas shows us the danger of empty religion. Judas also reveals to us the danger of the love of money. You know, Jesus said to us and to the disciples and to many others in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, he said, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Now, undoubtedly, Judas would have heard this teaching. He would have heard Jesus' other teaching on money as well but he's either forgotten it or he's ignored it because his greed has led him down this dark path to betraying the Son of God. Now, I reckon if you had have asked Judas three years earlier when he first started following Jesus, Judas, would you betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver? I almost am certain that he would have said, what, no way, I would never do that. But small compromises, small choices, small justifications along the way have led him to this dark destination. This is why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, the love of money, he doesn't say money, he says the love of money is the root of all evil. This is why J.C. Ryle, an English minister from many years ago, he says, this, this is really insightful, he says, let us watch and pray against the love of money. It is a subtle disease and often far nearer to us than we suppose. A poor man is just as liable to it as a rich man. It is possible to love money without having it. And it is possible to have it without loving it. Let us be content with such things as we have. Again, a sobering, a challenging reality, but an important one. Judas is a warning to us about the danger of empty religion and the danger of the love of money. But it's very important for us to notice that there is a, another layer going on here, that there is another more sinister power at play. Because we also read in verse three that Satan entered Judas. Now earlier in Luke's gospel, there was a, a confrontation between Jesus and Satan and Jesus wiped the floor with him and, and, and Satan kind of retreated. But we read at the end of that confrontation that Satan left Jesus until an opportune time. 
And so it seems like this opportune time has come. Satan sees an opportunity to get at Jesus through Judas. And so we read there that he enters Judas. Now, whatever this means, and to be honest, we're not given very much detail, what is clear is that Satan's influence does not excuse or justify Judas's actions. They do not put Judas off the hook. He is responsible for his decisions and his choices. And Jesus makes this very clear in verse 22, when he says, the son of man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. Judas is responsible for his choices. We, we shouldn't think of Judas as being controlled or possessed by Satan, as if he's walking around with kind of blank eyes and a monotone voice. Now, he's responsible for what he does. And it's the same for you and I. We are responsible for our choices and our decisions and our actions. We can't blame the devil or demons or anyone else. We are the ones responsible for what we do or what we don't do. But the really, really good news, especially for those of us who trust God, it's that even above our decisions and our choices and our actions, even above what we do and don't do, it's the plans and purposes of God. I mean, did you notice what Jesus also said there in verse 22? He said, the son of man will go as it has been decreed. Now, when Jesus says he will go, he means to the cross. Jesus knows that he's going to be betrayed, that he is going to die. But this, he says, has been decreed. This has been determined. It was the plan of God from the beginning. Now, this is really important. Jesus is not a victim of Judas's betrayal or of Satan's scheming. Jesus is in complete control. He knows what is happening and he knows where he is going. I mean, this is amazing. The religious leaders, they're acting out of jealousy. Judas is acting out of greed and malice. Satan is acting out of hatred for God. And yet all of them only end up serving God's purposes. All of them only end up advancing God's plans. You see, they think Jesus' death will be the solution to their problems. The death of Jesus is the very reason for which he came. Now, God's not the author of their evil, but God uses their evil to accomplish his plans. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that's an amazing thought. That no matter how strong evil becomes, no matter how dark life gets, no matter how intimidating Satan may seem to you, evil will never overcome and it will never outsmart God. God is never taken by surprise. God is never beaten for strength. God never makes a mistake. He is in complete control. And we see this especially in the cross of Jesus because God is able to turn the greatest injustice, the execution of the only innocent man who has ever lived, and God's able to turn that into the greatest rescue. God is able to bring about the greatest good from the greatest wrong. It's incredible. Now, we are responsible for what we do or what we don't do, but God reigns over all that happens. He even uses the betrayal of his own son. He even uses the scheming of Satan to serve his unfolding plans. And we see this as the story continues. Because the wheels are now in motion to put an end to Jesus. Judas is looking out for an opportunity to hand Jesus over when he's in a secluded place, when there are no crowds present. 
And this brings us to the next scene in the passage, which is the supper. Now, we read earlier that this was the time of the Passover, the Jewish festival in which the, they would celebrate the Exodus. Now, if you don't know the story, it takes place in the Old Testament book of Exodus. Amazing, I know. Now, God's people were in slavery in Egypt. They cried out to God to rescue them, and so God unleashed a series of plagues to uh, force Pharaoh to let them go free. And the final and climactic plague was the death of every firstborn in every household in Egypt. And the only way to avoid this fate was by killing a lamb and then smearing its blood on the doorframe of your house. And if this was done, then God's judgment would pass over your household, which is where we get the name from. And this final plague resulted in the Israelites being let go. And so every year, the people of God, they would celebrate this freedom through the feast called the Passover. And they would do this by sharing a meal together. But of course, this wasn't just any meal. You didn't just throw a few snags on the barbie. There was very specific ingredients and very specific requirements. It actually required a lot of preparation. And this is why Jesus sends two of his disciples ahead into the city to make preparations for the Passover. Now, I don't know if you noticed this when we read it, but the instructions sound a little bit like something from a spy movie. I mean, you've got a guy with a water jar and a secret house and speaking to the master of the house and, and all these kinds of things. Why the secrecy? Why the cloak and dagger? Well, it seems likely that Jesus is hiding the location from Judas. He knows that Judas has agreed to hand him over when he's in a secluded location away from the crowds, which would have been when they were eating the Passover. But Jesus doesn't want it to happen just yet. Yes, he will be betrayed. Yes, he will die. But it will be on his terms and in his timing. It would not happen until he's had the opportunity to explain the meaning and the significance of his death through the Passover feast. And so Peter and John, two of Jesus' trusted disciples, they carry out his instructions, they prepare the feast, and later that day, Jesus and the disciples eat the Passover together. Now, it's very obvious that this was a significant moment for Jesus. We read in verse 15, he says, I have eagerly desired, literally, I have desired with desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus has been looking forward to this moment and to this meal. And for good reason, I mean, this is a pivotal moment in the true sense of the word. There is a sense that in this meal, there is something that is coming to an end. This is Jesus' final meal with his disciples. It's why we call it the Last Supper. It's the final Passover of the Old Covenant. But there's also a sense in which something is just beginning. See, after Jesus' death and resurrection, this meal would be given its true and its ultimate significance. It would point to the salvation that Jesus would secure for you and me. You see, Jesus is the true and the ultimate Passover lamb. He's the one to whom all those Passover lambs pointed thousands of years earlier. And just as the blood put on the doorframe offered protection from the plague of the firstborn in Egypt, well, the blood of Jesus offers us protection from the plague of our sin and its consequences. And this is Jesus' point when he takes the bread and the wine, which were both significant elements of the Passover meal. And he breaks the bread and he says that it is going to point to the giving of his body. And he pours the wine and he says, that's going to point to the pouring out of my blood to set you free from the consequences and the penalty 
of your sin. And this is why Jesus says in verse 19, do this in remembrance of me. Not in remembrance of the Passover, but in remembrance of me. Now you can imagine the disciples' heads must have been spinning. I mean, Jesus is reinterpreting a a tradition that is thousands of years old, giving its true and its proper meaning. He's talking about bread and his body and wine and his blood. I mean, this is one of the craziest dinner parties of all time. But if this wasn't enough, what Jesus says next really gets the tongues wagging. See, Jesus turns from talking about his body and his blood to telling the disciples that one of them will betray him. He says in verse 21, but the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. Now this is the moment that da Vinci captured in his painting with all of the shock and the fear and the anger that goes with it. Now I've got to admit, I've always wondered, what is Judas thinking in this moment? Like surely at this point he thinks, the game is up. He knows. Like surely this is the moment to confess and repent and to call it off. But you know, sin can make us very, very hard-hearted. And that's not what happens. You know, all we're told here in Luke's account is they began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. It provokes this kind of questioning and introspection, which actually provokes a debate. You know, after talking about and wondering which of them is the very, very worst, they start to think and talk about which of them is the very, very best. And this leads us to the third scene in the passage, which is the debate. Look at what we read in verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Now, it's easy to think, how could they be so dumb? But we're not so different to them. In fact, we might even be worse than them because we live on the far side of the cross and the resurrection. We know all that Jesus has done for us. And yet we still get so caught up and so fixated on our own personal kingdoms and our own personal greatness. We might not verbalize it like the disciples did, but you see the desire beneath the surface. The desire to have exceptional children, to be exceptional at work, to only get straight sevens at at, at uni, to have the Instagram perfect home, to live in this postcode and not that one. Whatever it might be, we too can can get fixated on the desire to build our personal kingdoms and and for personal greatness. So let's not be too harsh on the disciples. But I guess the question is, what is Jesus going to do with them? How's he going to respond? It wouldn't be surprising if he started to act a bit like a bouncer again. And you see a few disciples, you know, being thrown out of the upper room. It's not what he does. Instead, he reminds the disciples that this might be how people think and live and act in the world. How can I build my kingdom? What can I do? What's in it for me? How do I get the the best position? But he says his followers are not to be like that. Verse 26, instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. It's revolutionary. To be a follower of Jesus means to be a servant. Why? Because the one we follow is a servant. And he's about to go to the cross in the ultimate act of service. To die in my place, in your place, 
so that we might be free. But of course, in this moment, the disciples don't fully grasp the magnitude of what Jesus is talking about, nor do they fully recognize their own weakness, which is why they're so shocked when Jesus says one of them will betray him. But Jesus has one final shock in store for them, and this one's a doozy, because it's about Peter, their unofficial leader. This is what Jesus says, Simon, Simon, which was Peter's name before Jesus changed it, which again, you know, Jesus has the authority to do that. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. Now, if you're at a dinner party, that's not what you want to hear. That's not good news. I mean, if Jesus said to me, Adam, Satan's been asking about you, I'd be wondering, and what did you tell him? Because you can tell him, I'm all good. Now, here Jesus says, Satan wants wants to sift the disciples like wheat. Now, to sift wheat, you would shake it violently to get rid of the chaff, to separate the useful from the useless. And in a similar way, the disciples are about to be shaken. They're about to go through a turbulent time, a time of testing. They're about to be separated from Jesus. And Satan wants them to be rendered useless. He wants them to be blown away like chaff. Look what Jesus says, verse 32. But I have prayed for you, Simon that your faith may not fail. Now notice Jesus doesn't say, I've prayed for you that you won't be shaken, that you won't be sifted, that you won't be tested. No, he says, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. See, there are worse things in life than times of testing and trouble and trial. The worst thing in life would be to lose your faith in Jesus. Now to Peter, the idea that he might turn away from Jesus, it's laughable, it's ludicrous. He replies to Jesus in verse 33, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Not me, no way, no chance, not ever. Never do that. But of course, Peter is a lot like us. He overestimates his own strength and in just a matter of hours, Peter would fail. He would deny Jesus in his greatest moment of need. Just as Jesus predicts in verse 34, he says, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Now, you might think, wait a minute, so Peter's faith did fail, even though Jesus prayed that it wouldn't. And the answer is no. Peter's courage failed, but his faith never did. His faith was never overcome and it was never destroyed. And we know this because after Jesus' resurrection, he goes back to Peter and he asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, yes, I love you. His courage failed, but his faith did not. And Jesus also predicted this, not just Peter's fall, but his restoration. He said in verse, 20, uh, verse 32, and when you have turned back, Strengthen your brothers. In other words, Peter would turn away from Jesus, but more importantly, he would turn back. And you know, Peter's restoration actually became his turning point. It really launched him into his most effective years of ministry and serving Jesus. He became a bold and fearless witness to the risen Jesus. He became one of the foremost leaders in the early church. And he actually did eventually go to prison and death for Jesus. He was crucified upside down 
church tradition tells us. And so Peter's worst failure became the doorway to deeper devotion and deeper trust in Jesus. And I think that we can learn from this as well. As one pastor says, allow your failures to be your instructor, not your undertaker. If you're a Christian, you have no right to say, I blew it, I failed, I messed up, I'm done. I'm not going to church anymore, I'm not going to pray, I'm not going to get involved, I'm not going to serve, I'm going to walk away. Because when it comes to Jesus, your failure is not the final word. His finished work on the cross is God's final word. And it's a word of grace and forgiveness and restoration. Your failures don't have to bury you. You should learn from them and grow through them. And by the way, I've never met a Christian that doesn't fail. According to the Bible, they don't exist. And so if you feel like a failure, if you feel like a mess, then I just want to say you're in the right place. Because Jesus came for failures like you and me. This is why he went to the cross. His body was given for you. His blood was poured out for you. And so what's your next step today? Maybe like Judas, you've fallen into the trap of empty religion. You're here in body, but you're not here in heart. Or maybe you're being seduced by the love of money. It's taking you down a dark and dangerous path. Or maybe you feel as if your failures define you. As if there's no way back to God after what you've done. The answer to all of those things is to turn to Jesus. The one whose body and blood was given for you. Receive all that he's done for you. Let's pray. Father, wherever we might be in this place today or watching online, whether we've fallen into the trap of empty religion, whether we're being seduced by the love of money, Lord, or whether we just can't get our eyes off our own failings, we ask, Lord, that you would lift our eyes off ourselves and onto you, that we would see all that you've done for us, the great love that is shown through the death of Jesus in our place for our sins on that cross. So Lord, would you revive us, refresh us, renew us today? Would those moments of failure, Lord, become defining moments that actually propel us into greater trust and deeper devotion? Lord, would you do a powerful work in our hearts this morning by the, by the power of your spirit and for the glory of your name? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing in just a moment about the King of Kings. But would you stand for this closing blessing from God's word before we do that? The grace 
of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.